This is Access Reality. I'm Ali Kadili. Uh, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Uh, Mr. Scott MacArthur. Mr. Mr. Yeah. <laughs> I can talk about that if you like, actually. It's quite a good story there, Ali. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> Scott is a business and HR consultant, TEDx speaker, former research scientist in biology. He's worked for organizations such as the UK Defense Ministry and UK Olympic Authority. He currently runs Sculpture Consulting, which is an HR company that focuses on business development, people development, and business innovation. Scott has published in a variety of disciplines, and we're really honored to have him here today. So thank you for coming on. Hello, Ali. Nice to see you. Great. So um, today we want to get you valuable insights on organization and leadership. Okay. Uh, and so in, in a company. So we'll start off with the leadership part. Now, we're inundated with talks, books, gurus, video snippets, uh, unsolicited advice from whoever about uh, leadership and what you need to do to become a great leader. Hmm. And common sense tells me that there's not one, there's not only one leadership style that is successful, that it probably depends on the personality of who the leader is, who they're managing, what the situation is. Um, and there are probably many different styles depending on all of these uh, different factors. So can you tell us in a nutshell of the successful types of leaderships? Like what is the common denominator? Right. Now that, it doesn't have to be one thing. It yeah. Just, uh, I mean, I think, I think in a nutshell, I would say it's the type of leadership that matches the context in which the organization is operating. That's it in a nutshell. Okay. Um, that so whatever it takes to be effective then. In that context. So, for example, um, Jobs is a, a, an often quoted leader. His personality, by his own admission, was not well developed. He was a bully. He was impatient. He didn't certainly in his early days, recognize the importance of people in his business. He didn't. Um, and many people would say that he was an unpleasant individual. And indeed, you've, you've probably heard the famous uh, phrase that his people used to use to describe him, which was that he lived in a, a reality distortion zone. He was so disconnected with reality. Now that worked. And oddly, it worked because if you were to put the standard MBA template onto jobs, he would fail because he was aggressive, arrogant, etc. Treated people like, classically like resources. And when I say resources, he treated people like wood or steel. He didn't treat them as people. That worked. But did it continue to work? No, it didn't. He lost his job at Apple. And he went off and he did Pixar and other things. And then he came back. But when he came back, um, Apple was in a bad state. So once again, his type of leadership worked again because he was aggressive, impatient, driven towards, you know, fixing the issue. So even with that famous example, it's a, it's a curve valley, you know. So the leadership, there are very few examples of leaders being in jobs, one job for many, many decades. I mean, the average CEO now is in post, the, the numbers vary, but between 18 months and four or five years. 
So they're not even in post that long. So um, back to the Steve Jobs example. Um, yeah. So he basically wasn't very nice. Now, no, horrible. did that work because he was only dealing with people who were under him? And then after he was dealing with people above him or at his level, he got fired. Then it yeah. worked again because, again, he was dealing only with people who were under him. I, I think that that's a good, that's a good observation. I, I think he was the type of person who needs to be ultimately in charge, categorically in charge, a bit like Patton or MacArthur during the war, Second World War. He was that type of leader, but his people didn't like him. I mean, there's all these myths about how po he wasn't popular. He said himself, you know, when, he, when the poor man was dying, he said himself, I wish I'd spent more time getting to know people and being kinder. And um, yeah, so I think you're right. I think that he, he, he had to have ultimate power. Um, is there um, this issue of somebody being nice, quote unquote, um, is there any correlation with that and success of leadership, whether it's being nice makes you a more effective leader versus not being nice actually makes you a more effective leader because it gets results done? Huge, huge question again, Ali. You're good at these big questions. Um, I am not aware of any data that would give me a, a, an ability to answer that directly. However, my suspicion is that being nice up until 2020 had no correlation with success. I think being focused on the numbers, being focused on the, 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 the value and the profit in the organization or the social value or whatever was the measure of success. Going forward though, given that we're recording this in April 2020 in the middle of the, the COVID-19 pandemic, there may be a change in that. Now, I'm not, again, I've, I've said before, I don't like predicting the future because according to futurists, we'd be going to work with rocket packs on in 2020. We're not, it's dangerous and quite embarrassing. But I think one of the things that might happen is we might start to look for the nicer type of, of leader. What is interesting though, you, and this again is, is looking at it from the meta level, you know, the high, is looking at it from the helicopter view. A lot of driven, difficult, tough leaders, when they become successful, get nicer. You know, so they, 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 they've made their money. I mean, like uh, Warren Buffett's one of my, I mean, I have very few business heroes um, because I, I always smell BS. But with Warren Buffett, I don't. He, he has been driven, he has been determined since he was a young man. But he always said that, you know, bureaucracy, lack of knowledge were the reasons why businesses failed. And he's been consistent to that into his 90s. So I, I think there are some examples, maybe outliers, but I think, the, I think your, your question is a good one and a difficult one. And it would be a great PhD to actually look at a niceness scale if there was such a thing and see if there was any correlation with success. I think it's too complex. I don't think that I don't think you would find a correlation. I think there are in the field of psychology, at least, like uh, measures and tests of likability. So maybe yeah. if employees rated the uh, uh, <clears throat> their 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 manager or their boss as to whether or not they like them or not their the, the likability. But uh, yeah. you know, part of the reason I ask it is because um, 
could it be that being nice sometimes is an impediment to actual effectiveness and, and success? And that's, it's a difficult way to think about it because it's not typically what, how, how we uh, hear about these things, but. Yeah. Can I answer that in two ways? The first, the first point is is a is a is a more scientific point. Um, one of the great challenges in leadership schools, MBAs, anyone who's looking at trying to be a better leader is that the way we measure a lot of these things, like engagement, happiness, etc. One, there are very very rarely any standard definitions of what these words mean, and two. They're always measured or nearly always measured by some form of self-diagnostic, self-questionnaire. That means that the data is seriously flawed. So no matter what anyone says, whether it's Gallup or any of the other major uh, interviewers or major provision, uh, providers of data in this field, oftentimes it's anecdote. And lots of anecdote does not mean lots of data. So that's the first thing. And, I, and I, I'm, again, it won't surprise you, I don't think. I'm drawn to that because it's so complex that it's very difficult to see through it. So that's the first thing I would say about that. Um, the second thing about whether or not someone is friendly or not, um, if it was measurable, hmm, I, I'd be fascinated to, to get into that in a bit more detail, Ali. At the moment, um, you can probably tell from the way I'm speaking, I'm resistant to say anything definitive because I think it's very difficult to say that and most of the people who are definitive about it are selling products they, they, they are not oftentimes in the job they are they are oftentimes you know former academics um, or lone gunmen who have been in companies and they don't have the same skin in the game as someone who's a leader in, in the actual role so it's it's a very difficult question and I, I hope I don't sound like I'm avoiding it maybe I am but it, it, it's a difficult question no I understand it's complex and I think um, part of it is anecdotally too you see people who are very nice and very effective and you see the opposite yeah. also yeah yeah and again I've said this before um, where I mean I, I, I laugh at physicists who who say to me, you know, from the top of a mountain, you know, how complex physics is. We don't know how a mouse works. You know, we we have no idea uh, beyond foundation how the 85 billion brain cells work. We have very little idea how that translates to behaviours and 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 beliefs and values. And so, actually, th this is a frontier. I mean, the the question you're asking is a to quote Shakespeare, an undiscovered country. You know, this is a this is a wonderfully complex, a wonderfully interesting area, and I I often say to people nowadays more from the stage, but I say to people enjoy that. Don't don't try to measure everything, because I think there's a again come back to Buffett. I I, I was very lucky. About three or four years ago, uh, I was at a conference and Buffett was speaking. And he, he was he, he's not he's not what you would call an exciting speaker, you know, but he, he's a good speaker. And but at the end, there were some questions um, from the audience. And I wish it was me that said this, but it wasn't. One, one of the other people in the room asked Buffett, he said, what's the biggest problem in business today? And honestly, with, with us, and without even thinking about it, he said, it's this. He said, it's an easy question. He said, it's people checking people checking people, checking people. In other words, bureaucracy. 
Yeah. And I and I think there was more insight in that, that short statement from Buffett than in most leadership books. Because most leadership books are all about putting in place systems that talk about people checking people, checking people, checking people. And that's that's not a criticism necessarily because how else do you do it in the old paradigm? You have to. I mean, there's this sort of, um, one of, one of my uh, favorite challenges to people is, you know, organizations were set up to do something called scalable efficiency. You know, the reasons or, or the organization was formed was so because more can do mo- more, can produce more than the individual. And that continues to be the case. But the problem is we'll put all this 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 over management, over leader, even leadership, over leadership on a lot of systems. And that has killed the system. And we're seeing it in a lot of businesses today. You know, they, they, people are saying, oh, sorry, it's a very Scottish thing to say on, on, on your podcast. But oh, um, we don't need to do that measurement anymore. We just know it works. And you know what? And this hurts a little bit as a scientist, but actually, I think that's probably true. Yeah, I mean, um, the set of resources and time is finite. And if you're spending yeah. a big chunk of that, just constantly rechecking and reevaluating and tracking things. And uh, today that comes up in digital marketing, I think. Yes. Like when you trying to run a company and you have a digital marketer who spends more than half their time just evaluating what they're doing more, more yeah. than doing it. Kind of. Yes. Yes. I mean, there's, there's two things there, two stories. One is a very quick one. Um, it's the difference between a financial accountant and a management accountant. Um, one of my mentors said to me, and he was a chief executive, he said, financial accountants cause all the problems and get their kudos from solving the problems that they've caused. Hmm. I think there's some truth in that. The second thing uh, is a much more personal experience. I, I started my corporate career after I left the laboratories um, with a, a utility company called British Gas. And British Gas uh, was, was a, as it sounds, was an, an enormous former public sector company um, that, that was running the, the British Gas industry. And that, that industry was rated as the best company to work for in the UK, the best provider of gas and gas services in Europe at the time. They then decided to do a rationalization of the whole organization to, 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 to break it up effectively, to, to make it more competitive. The first thing we did, and I was, I was a junior uh, sort of middle ranking HR professional at the time, it was actually, a per, they called them personnel officers. It was even before the phrase human resources came around. And my job was to close down all the welfare services across British Gas. And I had to close down social clubs, football teams, cricket teams, golf clubs, bowling club, you name it, snooker clubs, badminton, squash. All of that had to go because it was seen as not adding value to the bottom line. I think that was the beginning of the end of British Gas. The company has since fallen apart in terms of it's got poor reputation, it's overpriced, it's been it's been broken up into multiple parts, it's owned by different nations, it's inefficient, it's not as safe. On every level, it doesn't work unless you're in the shareholder office and you're making money for the shareholder. That does not, for me, equal value. And I know that's getting towards politics, but that, to me, does not equal value. And I think 
the, the, I mean, it was a difficult lesson for me. I had death threats. I had dog excrement through my door. I had my 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 wife was sent letters written like out of a a horror movie, cut out in newspapers, and um, you know how dare you shut down our welfare club, and that took the heart out of that company, and the loyalty collapsed, you know, and I think that this is in the 80s, Ali, so you know, this is quite a long time ago, but I think one of the things we're, we're suddenly realising is that key workers and key behaviours are actually not the ones that are measured classically by the bottom line, and I think a lot of companies are going to have to wake up to that, because I, I was talking to a chap yesterday called Ben Witter, and Ben is a uh, an employee experience expert um, and him and I are, are, are keynote colleagues and we, we were chatting, just chatting yesterday and he said something yesterday I thought was very interesting. He said, in the next 10 years, one of the key questions in every employee engagement survey will be, how did your organization respond to the COVID-19 crisis? And I think that could really drive new behaviours. Now, what they're going to be, I don't know. I mean, I, I can speculate. But I think that is a really interesting observation that Ben made there. Yeah, so you've touched on something very important, which is the culture of a company and yeah. um, how that correlates with the success and failures. And I have to admit to you that, you know, when I first started doing, you know, and having a private company, I just, I thought that was fluff culture you know i just thought focus on the actual hard stuff that will make the company run better to do your products um, you, you know and uh, but the i did get to realize that the culture of the company is actually more important than almost anything else yeah um it, it's incredible because yeah. you will have competent employees in themselves and they will cease to function when you yeah. put when they're not in the right culture Yes. Um, and then it becomes very difficult to correct that once it goes awry. So um, how, if somebody's forming a new company, let's say, or a new team, yeah. um, what do they need to think about and consider in terms of ultimately, how, how am I going to produce the right culture if they're starting oh. from scratch? Right, that, that, that's another massive question. <laughs> um, I think, I think um, the evidence would suggest that if you are forming your own business, you need to be the one who is leading that business. You, you need to have a, a, a resilience to get you to where you want to be. You then need to have the right people with you. Now, those people will not be the same people that will make that business a success when it gets to business as usual. They won't be because they will be the disruptors, the creative types, the the ones that challenge the current model. So a good a good business at that point needs to be living in the future you know they, they, they need they don't it's not a me too approach it needs to be you know this is what the this is how we're going to disrupt everything and those behaviors are very different to the ones that come along then and say right we've set the business up let's make some money let's turn the wheel and this is why a lot of entrepreneurs sell their businesses because when it gets to the point of that scalable efficiency i talked about earlier it's not as exciting because you're just turning a wheel. So I think, I think again, there needs to be a, a, a layer of, of, of um, I think, sort of 
honesty with this you know people think that they if they're going to set a company up they can do it forever no they can't because their behaviors are very few can change the behaviors sorry i've said that in a very long long-winded way jobs did which is interesting but but most don't so therefore a leader would need to know when she had to exit that business as well and go into her next uh, project does that make sense yes it does um practically speaking when you're forming a new company and hiring um most likely than not, most of the people that you're going to come across to hire are going to be the ones who are good at business as usual and not disruptors. That's yeah, just yeah, that's right. And so, you know, I've been caught trying to form a new team and most of the people there are not disruptors. And, yeah. and trying to like, it's like pushing a, you know, a massive rock up a mountain. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you look for exactly when, when you're looking at someone like that? At the beginning? Yes. At the beginning. At the very beginning. Well, I, I would certainly look for people who were, one, not like me. So I think a mistake that, I mean, recruitment is a, <laughs> is a whole other subject. Um, I mean, the least effective way of recruiting people is through interviews. But most companies continue to recruit people through interviews. Um, but we also, most of us, and it, it sounds like an old wife's tale, but there's actually a, a body of work behind it. We, we make a decision on someone in the first 30 seconds. That's not just made up. That, that, that's why in the 80s and the 90s, we had competency recruitment and it's all failed. But you know all these different types of recruitment came in to try and counter that because they saw it, for it as a discrimination rather than a, a bit about quality. I think it was both, actually. I think there was some quite naive perspectives at that time. So I would certainly look for people who are not like me um, I would look for like one of my best best experiences of this was when I did my first ever uh, TEDx talk on why facts don't change people. The talk was fine. I mean, I enjoyed doing the talk. It was two and a half thousand people. I was I was very nervous, and it was it went really well, so it was fine. But the best bit was the dinner afterwards, Ali, where we were all in the room talking about each other's uh, talk, and you had you know an opera singer an AI specialist, a nanorobot specialist. You had a, a criminal uh, judge. You had a, a guy who was a prison guard. You had a sex therapist. All giving us feedback on each other's talks. And I call that, like many do, I call it cognitive diversity, where you get different perspectives. So I think early on, it's really important to have that cognitive diversity in your in your company or at least in your network. Because what, what most of us have, if we're absolutely honest, even those of us who have a scientific mindset, we're still operating largely in one of these bubbles. You know, you, you rarely read things that are not within your scope. Um, so if you're a, a scientific mindset, you will read mainly scientifically based thinking. Now, I think that's a mistake. You know, and that's why, although I'm a, a evangelical atheist, I am very much drawn to the Jewish culture, to to um, pilgrim cultures, to Quaker cultures, because although I'm not, you know, minded to believe in anything supernatural, I am minded to believe that look at the sides, you know, I can learn from these people, and I can use them. So I I think that is very difficult for someone who's looking for a team, but get people round about you who are not like you. And I've never, I've actually never come across a company that does it. I haven't. I, I really haven't. It tends to be either their friends 
or people who have got very good CVs in the business world. They're not looking for, for this. And it's very difficult to look for. So, you know, they also have my sympathies. Hmm. So are you looking for different personality types? Because uh, I've always thought that maybe that helps because um, let's say I'm a big picture thinker. Yeah. I need, I need people who are not big picture thinkers, but very detail oriented so that we each cover each other's blind spots. Yeah. Um, is that the idea? How many personality types do you look for? Or... Well, okay. Well, first of all, the, the way we measure personality is massively flawed. Um, the, the, you know, there is no data supporting thing, the classics like Myers-Briggs. I mean, there is no data. Um, it doesn't work. Um, IQ, yeah, there is data that does work. So we can definitely look at that type of type. It's not personality, but we can look at that. Um, but, and, and crumbling it down to what I call radical simplicity, I think you're probably right. Um, I personally am not a complete finisher. So I, I value someone who will grab me and say, right, Scott, you have to fill in that purchase order or you have to chase that. Because if it was up to me, I'd get to it eventually, you know, but my cash flow would be damaged. So I think you're right. How we select it though, again, is difficult because I think I go back to context and it's maybe what you said earlier about culture. There's a substrata of that which people refer to climate. What's the weather like? And I think sometimes you have to get somehow, and it's complex, the right people in the room and then see how they naturally fall into roles. So it's very difficult to select for it. I think you can select, and this sounds a bit, I don't know how comfortable I am, people say oh, you should select for attitude. Uh, part of me thinks that's right. Part of me is not comfortable with it, but... I think if you've got people in the room who are really want to succeed, really want this idea to work, then some of the roles will be filled naturally. Uh, I mean, I'm working um, at the moment with a group called the Whole Man Academy, which is a, a male wellness uh, movement. We're trying to create a, a new movement to create spaces for men to come together to talk, to, to you know chat about how they're feeling. And we've got an incredibly diverse group and it's working as I think, I think as a consequence of that. So we've got a, a broker, a fitness instructor, a news editor, a male model, a journalist and a, and a, and a trainer and me. And together it, it, it's working. We're, we're falling into roles where we're getting who, how, um, you know, one guy is brilliant at getting personalities to come onto our, uh, events or our podcasts or whatever another one is really really good at the look of, you know how our group works and how it how it, it how it projects itself to the media etc and some others of us are good at good at doing talking so you know so so we have a it's naturally happened now I, do i think that'll be the same team in five years time no i don't i think all those founders will end up either you know maybe one or two will stay but the rest of us will move on because we want the right people to keep the, you know, to keep the wheel going. Again, a long answer to your question, Ali, but I think that's much more grounded in reality than a lot of the, the mythical business structures and models that are out there. Hmm. But in general, you do agree that a diversity or cognitive diversity, as you said, is oh. probably the better way to bulletproof things. Yeah, I think it's lovely. And, and, and I, and I, I think it, it, one must be careful that, that people don't use that as a way of discriminating. 
because it can be in, in a negative way. I mean, recruitment is always about discrimination. It's always been about discriminating the best people for the job. I mean, that's what it's about. But, but I, I think if you look at it cognitively, it really, really helps. It really helps because you start to think about, my goodness, I'm sitting here with 12 people that look like, sound like me. Is that the best way to run my company? It might be if I'm running a manufacturing business, but even there, I doubt it. You know, even there, I think we, we probably need some people. They, they get called disruptors. I, I'm, I, do you know, I'm a bit, it's a bit like this word that's in the media all the time just now, this pivot, you know, everyone's pivoting. I'm a bit bored with that as well, you know, and I think disruption's another one I'm bored with. Uh, it's, ju it's just people who are not like me. That, that, that's the way I, 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 I like to look at it. So, what, I mean, one of my good friends just now is a musician. He was in a pop band in the 80s in the UK. And this guy knows nothing about business. He knows nothing about um, technology at all. And he's one of my main mentors. When I'm, when I, if I've got a problem, I talk to Tom. What do you think of this, Tom? He's like, oh, hey, man. You know, and he's like back in this other weird uh, dimension of time. But he is so wise. Is it, do you think, because it's... Uh, you're getting somebody else to look at your situation through a completely different perspective. That is exactly it. Exactly. I had a, I put this, I put this into, you know, reality a few years ago. Um, I was working with a, a very large European uh, IT uh, services business. And I was coaching and mentoring their top 20 salespeople. And all I was doing really was, uh, you know, teaching them how to be clear about what they were selling, be good at pitching, so presentation skills, and how to differentiate themselves um, from other people who were selling IT services. But what I said to them was, I said, it was a five-day program. I said, on day five, we're going to do a Dragon's Den. Uh, does that translate? You know, what the you know we got, we, so we're going to have me, the chief executive, and some guests, and you're going to have to pitch to the Dragons to get some feedback so on day five they'd all been they're very professional they they were they were good people they went away worked all hours to, to, to create their presentation they walked into the room and in front of them were their partners and children they had to present to them you have never seen so many grown adults lose color from their faces because they couldn't use BS. They couldn't use acronyms. Because somebody would put their hand up and say, Daddy, Daddy, what does that mean? They were all teenagers, so they weren't doing Daddy, Daddy, but I'm exaggerating slightly. But, you know, it, it took away that protective jargon, that protective um, internal culture that they actually damages them when they meet a client. You know, when they talk, start talking in riddles. And a guy yesterday talking to me, another fellow I was talking to, talking about leveraging the value of your employee capability. I was like, what the, does that mean? And you know what he did know? But it took him 20 minutes to explain it to me. And I said, imagine if you were going to a venture capitalist or a, or a, or a client and you use that language. It's just not going to work. What blows my mind is when they use that language with customers or clients. Yeah. Oh. Um, they, they think it sounds good, but they're actually, as you said, they're doing themselves a disservice because they they're not connecting with those people. 
That's right. That's right. And and I think the, 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 that connection part, certainly in my work as a keynote speaker, um, one of the reasons I, I always say to my clients, um, I want to meet you if I can. And if I can't meet you, um, I'll, I will have a questionnaire. Again, you know, there's, 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 there's issues with that, but it helps. I like to look at their website. I like to look at their newsletters. I like to listen to their people if I can on Glassdoor or whenever I can get the data because it's only then that you can really land your speech. You know, you, you can be, you can be, you know, you can come across as being wonderful and, you know, high impact, but you're not. You're only high impact if people do things as a consequence of what you've said. And the, and the best way to get to that is to actually be aware of their culture. We're going full circle here, aren't we? Being aware of their culture. So, I mean, I, I once did a, it was a very challenging one. I, I was asked by a, a pastor um, in, in, in London to speak to his congregation about good without God, right? I'm an atheist. So I was like, okay. And I went in there with a preconceived idea of how these people would behave. I was categorically wrong. It's one of the best events I've ever run, been involved in. There was none of the, uh, the no need for the God invocation of the God thing, but they fully engaged in the in a in a wonderful discussion about humanity, values, where it comes from, how we build it. It was a terrific experience, and I felt really humbled by it. I mean, it was funny because they weren't just it wasn't just a normal church; it was a Caribbean evangelical church. So they all had the guitars and the, you know, what Richard Dawkins called the Christian Taliban. You know, they were, it was, it was incredible, you know. Um, but again, I learned a lesson that day. You know, you, you have to move towards people to bring them towards you. And I think that's the same as a leader, a speaker, or a podcaster. You know, I think, I think you need to, you can't just be on transmit all the time. Yep. Um, you also mentioned you felt that interviews were a lousy way of recruiting. Oh, yeah. They're they're uniformly ubiquitous. Um, yeah. You know, I've always thought, you know, instead of interviewing, maybe the best way is to get somebody to work for a couple of days and try them out, so to speak. It's never actually worked out in practice for us, you know? Yeah. We're not like, a, like Google or some of these other companies, like a massive, but... Um, Practically speaking, for the average small or mid-sized company, what is the best way to hire them? Oh, I mean, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be extremely wealthy. Um, it's um, it's one what of the is, most what difficult. Is better, what, is, what is better than interviews? Let's put it that way. Oh, AI, online technology, um, because if you look at um, someone's um, like social media profile, or you look at their their, their LinkedIn profiles, obviously they're, they're sprinkled with truth and lies, um, but you get a better picture of them from that than you would from an interview because, again, we have this automatic bias, all these cognitive biases that we have in our brains that have an impact immediately. Now, even the AI is going to be biased, as Amazon found to their extreme cost because they were using AI to do recruitment and it turned out that the person who was writing AI was a white middle-class guy who wasn't very keen on women, uh, so there was, you know, right away there was a bias built in. So I think with machine learning and 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 developing AI, whatever that means, which we could talk about as well, um, we will get better at it. And it's only then that I don't know the answer. There needs to be some social element of it, you know, um, 
But even that I'm not sure about because do I need to like somebody to work with them? The answer to that is no. You know, people say, oh, I'd like to like my, my people, but you don't need to like them if they're good at their job. Um, so I, I am very difficult. Um, but the interview is definitely not the answer. Definitely well, not the answer. There's no evidence. Uh, there's a chap, do you know Adam Grant's work? Mm-hmm. Well, Adam Grant, has has written a lot about this in terms of reciprocity, in terms of, you know, behaviours outside of work, etc. But even all of that, and I would recommend to your listeners Adam Grant's work. I think he's 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 probably the only, and I mean it, probably the only person in this world, this HRA OD type world, that I really really admire. I think he's he, although he's an academic and therefore has never done the job. Um, I think he's got something about him that, that is really helpful to practitioners. Um, and he's written extensively about why you shouldn't use interviews or Myers-Briggs or, you know, any of these things. Yeah. I mean, we've, what we've done is we, we look at their profiles, you know, everything online as a, as a way to select which ones to invite for an interview. Yeah. Um, yeah. But still, I, I mean, in my mind, there still, there's no clear alternative to that. I, I don't think, I don't think there is Ali. I, I think it will come. Um, there are companies that now don't interview. Um, they just bring them in and, as you say, test them out. Um, there are companies that do things like with senior executives, they they put them back to the floor. So they, if you're working in a, a construction business, they'll get them doing, you know, laying bricks or paving stones. They'll, they'll, they'll send them right back to the to the bottom um, just to see how they react to it, how, they, how their ego copes with it. Um, but there isn't a perfect solution. And and you know what, Ali? I don't think there ever will be because there are 7 billion of us and we're all different. You know, that's why labeling people through personality tests, etc., is flawed because we're just all different. Um, and I think it's that's what you said, the suck it and see idea, you know, try them out. I, I would be, I would be inclined to think that's a good, a, a better way to look at it and and I mean, i'm not aware of the data but i'm sure if you went mining for it you would find it that would support that yeah i'm i'm sure it's the best it's just that you are still investing in them when they're coming in to work for you for yeah. like a week or whatever so that's yeah. the issue if you're a massive company you can pull that off yeah um otherwise maybe not yeah we've got uh, we've got a company in the uk called timson's and it's a shoe company it's a, a shoe repairer and it's run, it's a family business, and it's third generation. John Timpson's the chap who, who runs it. This organization pays its people the minimum wage. Um, and it has 30% of its workforce. That's the last time I saw the numbers, so that might have moved. But 30% of its workforce are ex-cons. Now, that is remarkable. His turnover rate is less than 3%. So he's paying minimum wage, 30% of his people are ex-cons. How is he doing it? Well, how he does it, there's a number of things he does. But the first thing he does is he says, okay, we have none of this technology nonsense. So when he took the job from his father, he got all, there was 4,000 shops in the UK. He got rid of all the tills that were all supply chain linked. So it was all the SAP type systems. He got rid of all the tills and went to a warehouse and bought 4,000 Victorian tills. He then said to the people in the shops, two rules, look the part and put the money in the till. So what was he doing? Making sure they were professional looking, but he was also giving them a huge trust signal. I trust you to run my business. 
and thirty percent of them are ex-cons. Mm. Right? Amazing. Now, and it worked. The other thing he does is, if you get married, he pays for your wedding. Um, when you join the company, he asks you what's your dream, and he makes dreams come true every month. So he does. He does a lot of other things, you know. But but he has really got it to a human level where other organisations that are living on minimum wage or near minimum wage uh, salaries really struggle. They have 10, 12, 15% turnover. He's got 2% last time I saw it. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. Great customer service. You know, every time you go in there, they're, they're pleased to see you on the minimum wage. Now, from my anecdotal experience, um, yeah. these little extra strange benefits of, oh, we'll give you this, we'll get you lunch every Thursday, we'll, yeah. you know, certain benefits, this and that. Sometimes it feels that that earns custom, uh, worker loyalty sometimes more than the actual number of the wage they get paid. Uh, 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 is, there, is there any data to back that up? Yeah, there is. There is data for that. I mean, things like um, if you say to someone, and these are so, this is where I think, HR has, has lost its way. Um, because back to where I said earlier about welfare and all this uh, being taken out of that, that, that utility company that I worked in, the simplest of things give people a sense of belonging. So it used to be we'd have our own offices, we'd have our own areas in a business, and businesses went for this sort of open plan industrial models uh, for, of scalable efficiency. Why was anybody surprised that that didn't work? I mean, it's completely ridiculous, but people do it um, and companies still do it. Um, so little things like, you know, giving people their birthday off, giving people their, their wedding anniversary off, giving people the right to bring their pets to work, giving, you know, there's actually data that suggests if you allow people to bring their dogs to work, it adds up to 6% to the bottom line. It's ridiculous, but there's data. I mean, I've, I've, I've met the professor who does that research. Um, so, it, you know, it, it can be these little things rather than people do things like, um, you know, job title bingo. So everyone suddenly becomes a VP, a vice president. Then they all become senior VPs. Then they all become presidents. And then, oh, you know, and it just keeps going. And it, it, it's a treadmill and it, it needs people, senior people need to listen to what their people want. And I, and I think there's a, one of the things I talk about is the future of work. And a lot of that is linked to how society is developing. So for example, um, you, you, I'm sure you've come across individualization in stores. So remember Coke did the bottle with the, with the names, the random names on. They're now doing it personalized. Mm. Um, you're now going into uh, clothing shops where they will do a dress for you that's made for you. It's made to measure. It's not off the peg anymore because the technology is there to do it. Now, do companies really think in the next few years that people are going to have individualized products out of work, that they're not going to want individual products in work? Well, of course they are. Uh, and that that's a hugely disruptive. I mean, I think this is a future, a real future that I'm in because Companies, are, they like collective bargaining, standard products, standard pay, standard bonuses, standard holidays. They've played with things like benefit, cafeteria benefits, where people can pick and mix. I think we need to go a whole stage further than that. Um, and I think that is a frontier that you've touched on there that companies are only just beginning to wake up to. And that is going to shake us to our foundations because our, our legal system, our employment law, 
is all based on collective. And I just don't think that can continue. I just don't see it. I, I, I just think it has got to change. There are even companies, Ali, who are now saying, okay, we've heard all this hype about the gig economy. Now, I, I like the gig economy. I'm not anti that. But there are companies that have said, we've heard all this hype about it. We don't want that. We want people who are going to join us for their whole career. And there are IT, high-tech companies offering jobs for life. And the only way you're not going to get, the only way you'll get sacked is if you do something really bad, like you kill somebody, right? Now that is hugely disruptive. But that sounds like what behaviours in business was like in the 1920s. But there are companies doing it right now and they're doing it successfully. That's disruptive. Yeah, mm. they're offering it's little things as you said, but it's it's looking at it in the future and saying what what's the consequence of individualization in the market is going to drive these these behaviors um, in the workplace as well. I mean, what I'm seeing is the I think the vast majority is the other way around. It's it, where it's towards depersonalization. I know yeah. the banks oh. works at a bank and they used to have individual offices, and now instead of that, they have. Instead of six offices, they might have three and they're shared. And it, yeah. you don't have an office that's yours. It just, yeah. with this day, you might have this or not. And is this an example of an imbalance between, well, I've always thought that, you know, we started off talking about leadership. Yeah. As a leader, you have mainly two responsibilities. You're leading a business, but you're also leading people. Yes. Um, and then, so you have to pay attention to both assets, yeah. to both aspects of things. And is that a... a is this an example of when businesses focus on the business part of it, they nickel and dime everything, you know, and then kind of neglect the other um, things that may not be as tangible, but help retain people. Yeah. Let, this might surprise you. Let me give you a key performance indicator for that. And I think this, this could really help leaders post Corona and before the next Corona, because there'll be another one. Um, Here's a new KPI, return on humanity. So what you're doing, what's the return on humanity? So if you look at, and I'm so sorry to say this, but you look at um, Richard Branson in the UK, I think it's very possible that he has committed commercial suicide in the last three or four weeks. He is now subject to a huge hate campaign, his behavior towards his people, a man who said in all of his literature, employees first, he didn't mean it. What it, did he it, do? Well, he's, he basically is, is begging for money from government to support his multi-billion pound empire. He's laying people off. He's telling people he's going to make them redundant. He's then clawing it back, changing his mind. He's all over the place. Now, as a human being, he's allowed to make mistakes. But I think he's he's committed commercial suicide. And he's not the only one. There's another uh, pub chain here called the uh, Witherspoons. Um, and again, very popular with young people, very, very popular, um, uh, affordable place to eat and drink. He laid his whole workforce off. I, I, I think commercial suicide. Um, and I think those lessons will be hard lessons for those companies. And I can't, maybe they'll survive. I, I mean, I don't want anybody to lose their jobs. Um, I hope they survive. But I think return on humanity is a new KPI 
that a lot of people are going to say, you know, how are we adding to the culture of this country, to the world? And th- I mean, this is even shaking up um, national borders. It's shaking up, you know, national nationalism as an idea because this is a this is a thing again. My hero Carl Sagan predicted this. You know, we, we we are this pale blue dot. We are so insignificant, and yet we worry about um, you know national borders and the borders of our towns and the borders of our villages. Um, it's not a real thing. You know, we we need to think about it differently. So I think returning and return on humanity would be a terrific way of companies to start thinking about their business. So yes, return on investment. Yes, time well spent for everybody. But yes, what are we contributing? And that's way beyond the corporate social responsibility models of the, the 90s and the noughties. Way beyond that. You know, who are the key workers? Why are they the key workers? Why, why are we paying them the minimum wage and yet we're paying guys who are spreadsheet jockeys, you know, lots of money? What, what, what are we doing? And I think companies have an opportunity there. It's not going to be easy, but they have an opportunity. Yeah. Um just one last thing back at interviews before we move on. Um, <laughs> if you are doing them, yeah. Um, is there any way, like what is the wrong way and the right way to do an interview and how long should it be? And what does the interview look like? Do you need multiple interviewers? What kind of questions? I, I've had entrepreneurs tell me that they do strange tests when they do the interview. They'll, yeah. they'll, they'll tell someone, Oh, meet me at 5am with your resume at this time just to see, because if that person gives them resistance, then they know they're likely to be resistant afterwards to yes. direction. Okay, so all of that is, is, is fine, and people are doing their best to come up with a way of recruiting people. But again, the problem is we're all different. So if you did that to me, I would tell you to get lost. <laughs> I would. i just tell you to get lost. Not interested, because I, I want to see a company that is interested in me. So if the company said to me, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't want a job, a proper job. I've got a company I'm happy with. But um, right, uh, how? what do you drink, Scott? You know, <laughs> what sort of food do you like? Um, if they were coming towards me like that, right away I would go, ah, they're interested in Scott. They're not interested in Scott being decommissioned and becoming a robot. Because, I mean, I used to look after recruitment for one of the big consulting companies. And the mistake we used to make was we'd, we'd spend a lot of money on recruiting the best graduates, the seasoned and experienced um, practitioners, usually at director level. We'd bring them in and we'd completely forget their CV. We'd bring them in and give them a big chunk of what we called ROM. Remember, random, remember the old ROM? We'd give them that. That's how it works here. We wouldn't say, do you know, we recruited you from X. What did you do really well there that we could bring in here? Never happened. It just, it, companies talk about it. They, they don't do it. They, they, they do it when they, they, maybe they have an acquisition. Yes, they'll bring in a 20 people from another company that maybe are working on a particular type of machine learning or a particular service provision. They might bring that into the fold, but even then, it it gets eaten by the culture, and it corrodes. So I think for me, I would be very interested in my delegate, my my candidates, very interested in them. 
I see you're a rugby fan. You play women's rugby. Let's meet you at the rugby club. You know, really interesting. Make them think they really want me rather than saying, we've got lots of money. Do you want a salary? I, doesn't it, That works for kids. That works for graduates. You know, dangle, you know, 70 grand in front of them and they'll come running. But when you get to somebody who knows what they're doing, it doesn't work anymore. Aren't you in danger if you are asking them what they like, what they do, what they, yeah. if, if, that, if that is your focus, yeah. wouldn't you be subjecting yourself to the bias of, oh, I'm going to pick people that I like because I really like that person. And I'm going to open up some things because I, I sympathize with their situation. I like them. Well, you, you could. Yeah, the answer to that is yes. Uh, and, that, and one of the other things you said earlier is having different people involved in the recruitment process. Um, I think that that's a jolly good idea. And, and I mean, I, although, again, having criticised the interview process earlier, one of the, the things that helped me when I was you know, an HR director, I would have the people who'd be working for this person involved in the interview as well. Now that, you can see that's got a mixed, you got a mixed challenge there because they might say, well, I'm scared of her. I don't want to work for her. Or they might say, oh, I really like him because he's a soft touch. You know, so there are positives and negatives. This is why this is so difficult, Ali. You know, every, I mean, you could do a matrix, couldn't you? Like a, like a SWOT analysis, you know, strength, weaknesses, opportunities and threats for every single one of these methods. And the problem is not any one of these methods is going to work for all the people. Um, and that's where a good HR professional, someone who really understands that, will not have standardised processes and that's heresy in the HR world for a lot of people. You have to be standard. You have to avoid this, avoid that. It's an avoidance tactic rather than a drawing the best people for, for your organization tactic. Difficult. Yeah. Um, if you have an employee that's competent but unmotivated yeah, and you spend time and you try to figure out, okay, well, what motivates this person? Um, is it position, money, status? What, and then, But you discover... That no, they just have priorities that are outside of work they're, that they're embroiled in, and work is not a that much of a priority for them. Yeah. So they won't be enthusiastic, they won't go out of their way, but they're competent. Yeah. What is the best way to deal with that situation? Uh, leadership decision required. Um, terminate. So you decision either terminate or keep. Is that the decision now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think again, we're that we're we've been programmed to be scared of asking people to leave, sometimes you've got to. And sometimes you've got to take the risk of, you know, potentially being taken to court. Um, no, you, you need to take a good decision based on a decent process, but sometimes that's got to be the outcome. And companies who wait too long for that are damaging their company. Because if, you, if you've got someone who is demotivated, it's a bit like yawning. It's infectious. You know, there's a Scottish phrase, if you fly with the, if you flee with the crows, you get shot with the crows. If you fly with the crows, you get shot with the crows. And, 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 and if these things are, if negativity, it's like the Dementor in Harry Potter, you know, it sucks the life out. You can't have that in your business. Um, and I, and I, and again, I, I've never, I mean, it's not an easy thing to do, but sometimes you've got to do it. And actually, oftentimes it's the best thing for them as well, but. Nevertheless, I think sometimes you need a difficult decision. I would try my best. If they're competent, I would try my best. But I would also be thinking about the good of the company. And I think that's, as a leader, you've got to take that, that responsibility. Care for the person, absolutely, very important. But if they continue to be a dementor, damaging your business, no, 
I've got to go. And you just confirmed something that I, you know, I've just noticed myself, which is you have one bad apple and it's just yeah. like, just like a, a real apple, you know, when it rots, the apples surrounding it begin to rot. Not yeah, the yeah, yeah. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And um, it's why, um, I mean, sometimes, not always, but sometimes if you're engage, engaged in a true transformation program, the word transformation is overused. It tends to be labeled onto a change program, which is very different if you're a biologist. Um, but sometimes with a transformation program, you need new people. You just can't wait. You know, you, you, you don't have the pace, the time, sorry, to, to change everybody or, or, or drag them towards you. And people will say, you know, you should do a change measurement, uh, change readiness, change, change leadership. Oh, yes, absolutely. But sometimes you've just got to change the people. Um, what happens? It's a hard thing. Yeah. What happens if you walk into a situation where um, you're leading an organization that you just come in and you find out that the culture is very negative? Yeah. Um, how do you, what is the best way to steer that? What do you have right. to do? You have to fire all the people involved? No, I don't think so. Um, because it, it depends what's caused the culture. So if you, if you put your engineering hat on and you're a systems engineer, you're looking for the, the hub, the root cause, the patient number one. You know, what, what is it that has caused this problem with the culture? Oftentimes, it's your predecessor. Right? So let me, let me give you, let me give you a, like a real example. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I had a company, but then I had to walk away from, do, my own, do other things for like a year, a couple of years, then yeah. came back. Yeah. And then the person who was supposed to be the manager, um, uh, I think that was the root cause. They, uh, they almost designed and made the whole system to fit their own uh, you know, comfort level rather than what's good for the company. Yeah. And all of a sudden you've had everybody in that company who were just thinking about you know, what makes their life easy, what's their best interest, what's their, half their time was being wasted, literally doing nothing, just talking to each other. And so you look at that situation and it's not the original person who was the manager, it's everybody else involved too. And what if they're super resistant to change? Like they just will, they just refuse to, like even if one of them goes, the rest are, that's who they are now. Right. Well, that, I mean, that's a very difficult, there isn't, there, again, there isn't an answer to that that's off the shelf, Ali, but um, I've been in that type of environment um, and I would certainly try to bring, change the behaviours because although people don't like changing, uh, they still get married, they still have babies, <laughs> so they do change. Um, so if I'm the leader, I walk the talk. You know, I, I am, I will embody the new culture. I, I will, I will hopefully just do it automatically. You know, I, I will be visible. I will be, you know, encouraging. I will be supportive. Um, but there's a there's a there's a, a length of time that's going to last for though. That that can only go on for so long. And at that point, it might be that you have to think about it in a slightly different way. And that might be that with natural attrition, you're replacing them with different types of people. Or it might be you have to take a more difficult decision and, and sell it or outsource it or whatever. Um, so there's there's no perfect model to that. But I I do believe though that back to our Apple analogy, that you know you can find people 
who are of a culture that you may be more positive about. So there's the other AI, uh, it's called Appreciative Inquiry. Have you ever heard of Appreciative Inquiry? And what that does is it looks for good behavior and, and, and makes that visible. And that can have a ripple effect in, in the business. So another example, I, I had a, in a very difficult environment, in a manufacturing environment, they had a, we, we came in, uh, there was a team of five or six of us to try and turn around that very type of culture. And one of the things that really worked was we said, right, we're going to have an annual um, uh, celebration of the company's success. And we're going to award um, you know, some prizes out to those that have done well. An employee of the year, we gave it to the receptionist. She was a, an absolute superstar and the lowest paid person in the business. And you know what we did? We doubled her, pa- her, her salary. We doubled it, right? The people would say, that's outrageous. She was worth it and the rest. Diane was her name, right? Yeah. And that sent a signal to that organization that if you are, you know, loyal, determined, doing your best, that's all we can ever ask. You know, we're looking. You know, we, we are engaging with you and we will we will we will reward that. And in that case it was a financial reward, but it doesn't need to be financial, it can be all sorts of other things. But for her it changed her life. She was in her fifties, you know, and she was like, she, she was sobbing. She couldn't believe it, but she got that because she absolutely deserved it. Um, That's so I think yeah. it's completely true, honestly. And, and I mean, it was a, a tough environment, um, but, it, but it, it really worked. And we then started to put people in charge of projects who had the technical capability, not the seniority. That is really tough for the managers because the managers think, well, I'm the boss. I need to be in charge. Nope. You're going to be subordinate to Gene because Gene knows more about this than you do. And a lot of the leaders had to leave because they just couldn't cope with it. Despite the fact we were still paying them their salaries, giving them their the company cars, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't cope with the, the, the junior people being in charge of them on a particular project because that junior person had the technical skills that they didn't have. And I think it's a lovely way of doing it. And I, and that, we got, we won prizes and we did really, really well as a business because of that. It changed the whole business because they knew that if they were good at their job, whether they were a graduate or a 65-year-old near retiree, that they would be rewarded for it. So would you say that reducing hierarchy is a good thing in business? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, is, is, does that contribute to the bureaucracy when you have this person above this person above this person versus it, like a reduced form of hierarchy where, the, yeah, there's a management player, but then after that, everybody's pretty much equal. I, I the, the, the evidence is varied on this. So it's difficult again to be certain, but my, my sort of, informed gut reaction would be the answer to the question is yes um, because it prevents um, Warren Buffett's warning from happening people checking people checking people checking people so I think that is is a definite yes um, I, I mean I've seen some in my time mainly as a as a consultant rather than when I had a proper job um, I remember working in the British military 
and I, I was very fortunate. I've done probably four or five years of my career in the military, Navy, Army, and Air Force. And there used to be a way of letting senior um, soldiers' careers run down. They would walk into a building and given and be given a desk job. This happens in the police force. It happens in the the, the uh, fire brigade, etc. Don't know if it still happens, but it did happen when I was working there twenty years ago. And what would happen would be this senior officer would be given a desk job, and he would sit there in full fatigues, playing solitaire for ten years, waiting on his career pension coming to an end we did that to people and because they were locked in pension wise and everything else they did it and that's desperate that it's desperate and we we must be better than that there must be ways that we can respect you know whether it's a, an older person or a a, a redundant skill set there must be ways we can do that. And, and, and I, I hope I've described some of the ways we can do it. Um, yes. But that, that, that honestly, that, that, I'm, I'm not making that up. That is completely true. And that, that is still rampant, I'm, I imagine. Yeah. 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 Um, is, it, um, is it true that, uh, you know, an effective leader cannot be friends with the people he's managing? I don't know if it's true, but it's probably probable. <laughs> I think it's difficult. I think I think there unfortunately does need a, to be a little bit of a distance between the two. Um, I think having your being willing to talk about your failings and your weaknesses and your strengths and to share them with colleagues is a good thing. But I think not so much the leader. I think people below the leader respect them more if there's a, an element of mystery or an element of you know they're above me in this structure. Um, so that's a, that's a positive from something that can be a negative in the hierarchy, hierarchical structure. So it's, I know it's a bit of a paradox. I like paradoxes, but um, I do think that you're probably right. Um, there's not a lot of data on that that I'm aware of though. It just comes from the old adage, familiarity breeds contempt. Where, yeah, when, whether you're friends, you lose some critical leverage over. Yeah, but I mean, if I look at my mentors, over my career, um, one of them, Professor Dougal Gardner, um, when I worked for him in the laboratories, I was terrified of him. But I was in I had huge respect for his technical capability and, and of his, uh, his ability to, to lead. And after we became friends and were friends for the best part of 30 years, um, that familiarity bred no contempt that familiarity of just bred deeper respect because I saw his vulnerabilities. I saw his, his weaknesses and he'd hidden them from me. So I know I'm contradicting myself here, Ali, and I'm not making an apology for it because I don't necessarily know the answer to this question. And I don't think anybody does uh, apart from it being right in the right context where I started the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I imagine even in this situation, you'd still have the motivation to try to perform for this person and impress them in some way. I'd do anything. I would, he, he passed about a year ago now. I, I, he was 93. I would do anything for that man. You know, And I think if you look at high-performing teams, there's another area that, that a lot of people talk about. Um, 
and the evidence is mixed, but you know they are rare things. But one of the one of the things that seems to be a consequence of a high performing team is lifelong friendship. So, for example, I had an experience of a high performing team actually in the military. I was talking about earlier, and there was maybe ten of us in that team. I'm in touch with every single one of them who's still on this earth. Mm. You know, and none of us work for that company anymore. Uh, no, that's not true. One of us does. Um, but we are all still in touch because we rocked. We were one brilliant team and we really rocked. Um, and I think that contradicts some of the, the the heuristic that says you shouldn't be friends. So I, I think, again, it's a difficult question. You're asking really difficult questions, uh, Ali. <laughs> this one might be simpler for you. Um, <laughs> do, do you think the labor laws actually put a barrier between management and employees? Meaning the management now is scared of saying things that might be used against them in the future. Uh, I'll give you a real example. I have a, a friend that I know really well who um, decision was made to fire someone, an employee yeah. who had been there, I think, um, for a year or two. Um, and you know, the way it works here, at least um, in Canada, is you fire someone either with cause or without cause. If yeah. you fire them with cause, then you don't have to give them any compensation because it's with cause, but then yeah. you have to prove that cause because they can contest it. Yes. So, which means in, in real terms that you have to have, you know, six months of documentation, warnings, this and that, which most companies do not have. Yeah. Uh, the other option was to fire without cause and you're allowed to fire they can't sue you or anything like that but you do owe them compensation yeah. depending on the time the length of time they've worked there so that person they decided needed to go then and there because they were incompetent plus contributing to a negative culture and yeah. he had, they had an hr consultant working with him and the hr consultant says because you don't have any documentation you need to fire this person without cause mm -hmm. and then so you need to actually talk to them look them in the eye and tell them no they did great and but you just have to you know so shocking yeah um right again maybe a longer answer than you expected um i was born in a, a town in the united kingdom in scotland called lanark and lanark was one of the places in the world where the uh, collective agreements started it was one of the first places in the world if not the first it was certainly one of the first where it happened and I grew up in that environment where um, in a working class environment, mom and dad, grandparents worked in the steelworks, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And if it hadn't been for the labor law, as you call it, um, there would have been big problems through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and early 80s. We needed the labor law. So I think labor law was absolutely crucial. However, what has happened is the legal profession are risk averse. So they don't give advice anymore. They just give, oh, uh, mm, you need to do it this way. They, they don't give you, they don't say, if you do it that way, it's going to cost you this. If you do it that way, it'll cost you this. If you do it that way, it'll cost you this. They don't do that. Even HR professionals, so I don't think should touch this stuff, but they do and it's one of the problems with the HR profession, I think, even they will not do that. They won't say, most of them won't say, well, we can't do it. They'll just say, we can't do it. That example you just given me, that's a classic HR response. 
we need to change that. So the labour laws now, it, you know the saying, the tail wagging the dog? Mm. I think those labour laws have become far too superior to what they were meant to do. And what they were meant to do was to create fairness, was to create a level playing field, and was to stop employers from abusing employees. It's gone too far. We need to take control. And I think the legal profession have got a huge part to play in this. The HR profession are not lawyers. A lot of them pretend that they're lawyers. Um, they shouldn't because they are not lawyers. I mean, I know one of the best employment lawyers in Europe, and he's a world-class lawyer. And he said to me, his name is David, and David says, says to me regularly, I know nothing about the law. And he's one of the top lawyers in Europe in this employment space. And HR professionals are trying to pretend that they understand the law. The law's got too complicated. I think what we should be doing is maybe just taking it all away and starting again. It's a bit like the, one of the great things about Corona is it's making us throw the real book out and start again. So why don't we do it with employment law and labor law? Because it, it's not serving the purpose today. It did serve a crucial. I wouldn't be on this call with you if it hadn't been for labor law. I wouldn't, because I wouldn't have been allowed to uh, flourish, change career, get educated. It wouldn't have happened because I would be seen as uh, seed corn for the steel mills or seed corn for the cotton mills. That's where I would have gone. But because of labor law, I was able to produce, I was able to progress because I was you know, competent and, and educated. So I, I, I think they've served their purposes, but we need, a, we need a change. There's a revolution required in that field. I think it, it, it's the tail wagging the dog. Absolutely the tail wagging the dog. Okay, lastly, um, for a small company, let's say, yeah. what kind of workshops, team building activities, events, um, retreats do you yeah. recommend? How frequently? What type should they be? Um, okay. Another lovely question. Thank you. Um, I think the first thing, first principles, is to make sure you're engaging your people regularly. So there's a, there's a model that I came across with Oracle, and they call it uh, check-ins, daily check-ins. They do it daily. I think that's too much, but they get everybody together and they say, how are we doing? It's not run by the boss. It's run by the most appropriate person. Get everybody in. How are we doing? Check in with your people as often as is appropriate. The evidence, and there is a study on this. I can't recall it off the top of my head, but the evidence is you should try for every couple of weeks. So doing it too much actually has a negative effect. But doing it every couple of weeks really, really helps. The second thing I would say is don't always engage your people in skills that are required for your business. There's some heresy for you. Give them skills that go beyond your business because it gives them life skills and it helps them in their life outside of work. Some, some uh, em employers are scared of that, actually, because oh, I know. They, feel, they feel that if they the employees become too skilled or they beef up the resume, then they might leave. They yeah. might, yeah. But if you don't beef up, beef up the resume, they might stay. Yeah. <laughs> it, works, <laughs> it works both ways. <laughs> you know, so I, again, though, if, if, if you, like one of my, one of my clients is a, a, is a, a very famous British retailer and they let me every, every month, I meet with 20 other people and I say to them, Right off the start, this will help you with your relationships at home, with your partners, your love life. This will help you everywhere, and it will help you at work as well. 
that course has been the most popular course in that business for four years because of that. And they've not had a problem with retention. You know, but, but they are seen as giving their employees an experience that will improve their lives. That's a return on humanity, Ali. Exactly, yeah. So that's one of the type of soft things that will help retain them, maybe. Absolutely. And I'll correct your language there. Sorry. That is not soft skills. That is really hard skills. We don't get taught relationships at university or school. We don't get taught how to meet somebody and fall in love and how to maintain a relationship, whether it's with your boss or with your lover. It's not that you're expected to fall into it. You're expected to stumble your way through it. No wonder people get divorced. No wonder people leave organizations. No, much, no wonder there's so much conflict. You know, we should be helping people with these really hard skills. That's why we avoid them at school. That's why we avoid them at school because they're so hard that, that we just we don't, we don't want to go there. We'd rather teach them maths or statistics because it's dead easy. Yeah. Back to what I said before. We understand the cosmos, but don't know how a mouse works. <laughs> Fascinating insights. Uh, thank you very much, Scott. Any last words on um, employers who the bane of their existence, as they say, is HR as to how they should approach it? Uh, stop it. That's it. Yeah. Stop it. Just stop it. Because... Um, if, you're, if, if HR becomes a problem, stop it. Do something else. Um, there are very, very clever, very well-qualified people out there that know how people work. They are not often, unfortunately, they are not often in your HR department because those, those people, it's not their, their, their fault. They're good people often. They're highly professional people, but they are not the people experts. And I think, particularly post-corona, we need people experts. You look at the curricula of the HRM or the CIPD or any of these HR qualifications, there's very little about people in there. It's all about being strategic. You ask them what strategic means and they can't tell you. Or they'll give you bullshit. Yeah? So I would say if you've got a problem with HR, stop it. And think about how you can create individuals who really really understand people at work and people outside work that's the solution to that perfect well thank you very much thanks for being with us today thank you very much alex